I think on, on the first one, I would describe the meeting as uh, intense, uh, certainly heated. This is a very complex, obviously it's a very, it's been a very dynamic and a complex couple of years. Um, and for players, I'm not surprised that, you know, this is an awful lot to ask them to digest. And, and this is a significant change for us, you know, in the direction that we were going down. But as I'm trying to explain... PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monaghan spoke with reporters on June 7th, the day after the golfing world was rocked by the news that the bitter dispute between the PGA Tour and the Saudi-funded Live Golf was to end. Since its inception in 2021, the rival golfing league had come under intense scrutiny. It had split players, with some of the sport's biggest names opting to leave the historic PGA Tour and defect to Saudi Arabia's new venture. It also marked the most recent big-ticket sporting purchase by Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. Additionally, it renewed focus on how the Gulf nation is using sports as a tool to improve its image overseas. This week, why has Saudi Arabia bought into the game of golf? Will their efforts to rebrand work? And will it help to reinvent the kingdom as a modern economy rather than a petrodollar-rich anachronism? I'm Hugo Goodridge, and you're listening to The New Arab Voice. Let's tee off with a quick look at what transpired between the PGA and Live Golf. Live Golf was launched in 2021 as a direct competitor to the PGA Tour, which hosts tournaments in the United States and North America, and the DP World Tour, that organises tournaments across Europe. Live Golf would have its own tournaments and the money to lure big names from the world of golf, which it did. Three times Masters winner Phil Mickelson, former world number two Sergio Garcia, winner of two World Golf Championship titles, Ian Poulter, and the 2016 US Open and 2020 Masters winner, Dustin Johnson, were just some of the big names who were lured onto the rival tour, which also offered some players eye-watering sums of money. The prize fund for the Live Golf League was reported at $405 million. What followed was a series of lawsuits and counter-lawsuits which ultimately served no one's interests except the lawyers. Some players who chose to join up with Live Golf were expelled from the PGA and the general bad blood between the two sides continued month after month. It was anticipated to continue in this manner until the recent shock announcement on June 6th. But ultimately it was looking at the broader picture and saying that I don't think it's right or sustainable to have this tension in our sport and to be able to, to, to organize and orient this in a way where, again, we're in a control position. Uh, we have an investor, a great and world-class investor. And the deal between the PGA and Live Golf was conducted behind closed doors. While the exact reasoning for the deal is still a little murky, it's generally accepted that huge piles of cash changed hands and it will now allow previously suspended players to reapply for the PGA 
and will see the Saudi Public Investment Fund invest heavily in golf and put an end to the lawsuits. Some of the early backers are obviously delighted, while others, such as golfing superstar Rory McIlroy, who told reporters following the deal that he, quote, still hates live, have come to some sort of level of acceptance that will allow them to continue playing. I've come to terms with it. Um, I see what's happened in other sports. I see what's happened in other businesses. And honestly, I've just resigned myself to the fact that this is, you know, this is what's going to happen. Like, this is, it's, it's very hard to keep up with people that have more money than anyone else. And again, if they want to put that money into the game of golf, then why don't we partner with them and make sure that it's done in the right way? And that's sort of where my head's at. As Rory McIlroy said, this has happened in other sports. Football, Formula One, even WWE wrestling. In recent years, Saudi Arabia has gone on a sports spending spree, pumping billions of dollars into different sports and luring some of the biggest names to Saudi Arabia to play. It's part of a concerted effort to rebrand the Gulf Kingdom, an effort often referred to as sports washing. Yeah, we understand the investments that the Saudi government is making in these very large-scale entertainment sporting events uh, as part of a deliberate strategy to whitewash its abuses and to deflect from some of the very well-known abuses that have taken place under MBS. This is Joey Shea. Joey is the Saudi Arabia researcher for Human Rights Watch. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, has led the injection of cash into sports, while also ordering and overseeing a litany of human rights abuses at home and abroad. Particularly over the past five years, the human rights abuses in in Saudi Arabia have really increased under the behest of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And we know his Vision 2030 states explicit plan to overhaul the Saudi economy and invest billions of dollars to diversify the economy and to get major entertainment and sporting events to come to Saudi Arabia. Vision 2030 is the brainchild of MBS and, in broad strokes, seeks to move the Saudi economy away from its reliance on oil. I don't think that we can deny that there's a real need for the Saudi economy to be diversified. I think that the Saudi population, like many most populations around the world, are genuinely interested in sport, in football, in Formula One, in golf. But considering the timing and the aims that are written in Mohammed bin Salman's own Vision 2030, it does appear as though one of the main goals of these investments is to deflect from the country's abuses. The list of human rights violations is as long as it is horrifying. The list includes, but is not limited to, the targeting of civilian areas in Yemen with airstrikes, dropping bombs on school buses full of children, jailing and publicly executing political dissidents, jailing and torturing human rights defenders, the abuse of migrant workers, clamping down on press and internet freedoms, the arbitrary detention and extortion of wealthy opponents, 
and perhaps most well-known, the murder and dismemberment of Saudi critic and journalist Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. It is these crimes that Saudi Arabia wishes to obscure or completely erase from the minds of the general public. The issue of human rights was raised by golf journalists in June 2022, speaking to famed golfer and proponent of Live Golf, Phil Mickelson. I don't, um, I don't condone human rights violations at all. I, I, I don't think it, I, I, nobody here does, um, any, throughout the world. And I'm certainly aware of what has happened with Jamal Khashoggi, and it's, I think it's terrible. I've also seen the good that the game of golf has done throughout history, and I believe that Live Golf is going to do a lot of good for the game as well. I think that the names of very prominent, very famous, very accomplished sports stars being attached to a government like Saudi Arabia has a huge impact, both on the domestic population, but on international perceptions of the government more broadly. Now, when you hear Saudi Arabia, you may not necessarily immediately think of Jamal Khashoggi, uh, the murdered Washington Post journalist, um, but you may also think of a potential World Cup 2030 bid. You may potentially think of you know huge investments in football uh, and now in of golf. Beyond the human rights violations, perhaps the most depressing reality of Saudi Arabia's sports washing campaign is that it has proven effective. And I do think that it has been allowed to be effective because not enough players, sponsors, and those participating in the sports that are being used to whitewash abuses. Unfortunately, far few of them have really spoken out and used their platform to you know, bring attention to the abuses that continue to happen under MBS's rule. It's worth noting that not all athletes have remained silent. Some, like the seven-time Formula One world champion Lewis Hamilton, who was raced in Saudi Arabia, have spoken out against abuses. But he and those like him are in the minority of athletes who have performed in Saudi Arabia or in Saudi-funded events. For their part, Human Rights Watch have been doing their best to pressure professional athletes and sporting organisations. Yeah, we we rarely, if ever, call for a full boycott. Under the UN Guiding Principles for Business and Human Rights, businesses should undertake human rights due diligence assessments, and part of that includes the potential human rights impacts of whitewashing of reputations. The UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights was unanimously adopted by the UN Human Rights Council in 2011. It said, Business enterprises have the responsibility to respect human rights wherever they operate, and whatever their size or industry. This responsibility means companies must know their actual or potential impacts, prevent and mitigate abuses, and address adverse impacts with which they are involved. In other words, companies must know and show that they respect human rights in all their operations. It sets out clear guidelines for businesses to follow. But therein lies the problem. They have to choose to follow it. If they decide to either ignore these principles or just pay lip service, there is currently no enforcement procedure to hold them accountable. The same is true for any pressure campaigns or requests from Human Rights Watch. 
I think at least some of them have listened. I think many more of them have ignored. And I think even those who have listened have not taken the steps that we have outlined that would be necessary to sort of mitigate the impacts of Saudi's whitewashing efforts. We haven't been able to engage directly with Live Golf, and we don't have any evidence to suggest that such a due diligence assessment was undertaken or what the results of that, that assessment was or would be. For players and for sponsors, you know, I think um, we've said this time and time again, we're not calling for a boycott of Saudi Arabia. We're saying that if you are engaging with a sport that is clearly being financed by the Saudi government, you really should be using your position of influence to raise awareness about the ongoing abuses inside of the country and use your position to push back and make sure that business relationship is not being used to whitewash their abuses. Saudi sports washing, as recently seen with Live Golf, would of course not be possible without big stacks of cash, which come from the aforementioned Saudi Public Investment Fund, or PIF. But that too, Human Rights Watch believes, is potentially directly implicated in Saudi human rights violations. For example, in November 2017, um, the very famous corruption crackdown that happened inside Saudi Arabia, which included detaining dozens of prominent businessmen, royal family members, current and former officials, outside of any recognizable legal process, the authorities pressured many of these people to hand over assets in exchange for their release. The PIF is is not just being used to whitewash abuses, but it's also been directly implicated in abuses. You know, we also know that one of the companies that is, you know, under the PIF is Sky Prime Aviation, which owns the two planes that were used by Saudi agents to travel back and forth to Istanbul to murder prominent journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Apart from being potentially implicated in human rights violations, what is the Saudi PIF? The PIF, the Public uh, Investment Fund, is uh, was established in 1971 by royal decree, and uh, it is uh, it's around 700 billion dollars right now. This is Imad Kehab, the director of research and analysis at Arab Center, Washington D.C. Although a few years back there was uh, talk that it's really uh, hemorrhaging money, it was at like 500 billion or something, but. I think Aramco, the Saudi oil company, has posted some really significant profits and income over the last few years because of relatively higher oil prices. So um, it has re- been replenished to seven, about $700 billion. It is from this giant piggy bank that the money for Live Golf and the rest of Saudi Arabia's sporting ventures came. But they're not blowing it all on golfing weekends. The, the funds are invested in all kinds of activities. I mean, you know, real estate, uh, businesses, um, and and obviously sports. The the PIF money is also invested in foreign government bonds uh, and uh, uh, ventures overseas. Uh, it's also used to uh, fund some of Saudi Arabia's uh, humanitarian aid to uh, other countries. And it's a very, very diverse kind of portfolio, although is very opaque. I mean, not not much is known about it simply because it is 
a fund that is controlled by the royal family and specifically uh, by the uh, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. So, uh, the whitewashing of Saudi human rights violations is actually more of a byproduct or secondary function of the PFI. For the Saudi government, its primary stated objective is to diversify the Saudi economy away from oil in preparation for a day when the world no longer wants oil or, more likely, when the wells run dry. Today, a lot of it is used for, uh, you know, to influence outside uh, actors to, and specifically in sports. And, uh, you know, uh, tourism projects, uh, we're talking about projects that cost billions and billions of dollars. Saudi Arabia is now embarked on, uh, on an entertainment kind of a drive involving tourism, involving uh, inviting international events, international festivals and things of that nature to widen the scope, so to speak, of Saudi foreign policy. And it can be called a soft power instrument uh, where uh, Saudi Arabia is uh, using its money uh, to increase its clout overseas. For MBS, tourism and entertainment are a big deal. The Crown Prince is seeking to bring in an ever greater number of tourists into the country. Since 2008, Saudi Arabia has seen only a modest rise in tourism figures. In 2008, they recorded 14.76 million visitors, and in 2019, they recorded 17.53 million. In 2020 and 2021, the numbers fell dramatically as the world stayed indoors. A large majority of the tourists visiting Saudi Arabia today are religious tourists, completing the Hajj to Mecca. Problem is, you know, but how much will tourism bring in? I, I doubt that it's going to be bringing in the heft, bringing in the large uh, sums. In 2019, Saudi tourism receipts were valued at around $27 billion, while the UAE recorded $49 billion in tourism dollars. Uh, it's also not, not so much as um, an employer. Tourism is not employing a whole lot of people. Uh, this is not only also an economic issue, it's also a, a, a social issue. It's, a, you know, tourism requires a lot of people to work in hotels and restaurants and, you know, be uh, tour guides and things like that. These things that don't necessarily bring in a whole lot of uh, income for, for individuals. Uh, and generally speaking, these are done uh, today, you know, Saudi, Saudi society is 40% expat. So these are the people who are probably going to be the ones who are the uh, pillar of uh, a tourist section uh, sector because uh, the Saudis are not necessarily employed in this sector except for uh, probably hotel managers or, or something of that nature. So, uh, you know, uh, Saudi society is 65% youth. You, you need a lot of tourism to really employ a whole lot of Saudi youth. And this is not yet, it's, it's not there uh, yet. By buying into popular sporting events abroad and at home, and in turn doing their best to brush aside ongoing human rights violations, there is the hope that it will serve as a tool to bring in domestic, regional and foreign tourists and their money. Over recent decades, the amount of money that has started to move around the sporting world, Saudi money aside, has ballooned. When so much money is sloshing around, it is inevitable that politics will become involved. And it's another reason why Saudi Arabia is spending on sports, to get in with political elites in the West. 
they're opening up on the West. I don't know how successful they're going to be, politically speaking, because in politics, in Europe and in the United States specifically, they have not succeeded uh, tremendously in penetrating elite circles. You know, uh, the U.S. Congress is still legislating things, trying to legislate things that are considered to be anti-Saudi. And uh, in Europe, also the same thing. Uh, these things, you know, the, the PGA Tour and the soccer clubs and the uh, importing players, and all these things are really nice and, you know, they attract uh, headlines and they attract coverage, good coverage and stuff like that. But, you know, it's uh, it doesn't necessarily cover up for the deficits, uh, the human rights and democracy deficits in the, in the country. The shortfallings in the effectiveness of penetrating elite political circles in Washington, D.C. was clearly seen when just days after the deal between Live Golf and the PGA, it was announced that the U.S. Senate had opened an investigation into the deal. In a joint letter to the Department of Justice asking them to, quote, closely scrutinise this deal and oppose it, end quote, Senator Elizabeth Warren and Senator Ron Wyden said... The PGA Live deal would make a US organization complicit and force American golfers and their fans to join this complicity in the Saudi regime's latest attempt to sanitize its abuses by pouring funds into major sports leagues. Given the financial power and, in some instances, political power wielded by massive sporting organizations like the PGA and FIFA, they could represent an alternate route to influence a kind of back door. The issue is, what's the impact? In other words, uh, yes, they they do a FIFA thing or they do a PGA tour or whatever it is, but, you know, how much deep down in Western societies uh, do they go? And how can they influence the elites that are also demanding that Saudi society is open, uh, opens up, politically speaking? So, yes, it's it's not for naught. I mean, uh, they, they definitely are uh, winning some, uh, some things. And I know in, in Washington, D.C., they have uh, uh, at least five different lobbying firms and, and groups that are pushing for uh, to improve their uh, their uh, record in the United States. But generally speaking, it's still not there. It's still not very effective. For a general audience, sports washing is seen to be a pretty effective tool. In the halls of power around the world and among decision makers, seemingly less so. But according to Imad, such spending does not only have foreign considerations. MBS is also thinking closer to home. I honestly believe that the, the FIFA issue is uh, also to influence domestic society, to give domestic society something it feels it's due. In other words, uh, they're trying to give domestic society part of, of these investments to show domestic society that, hey, we are doing something internationally, we're bringing the world to you, be satisfied with your life and things of that nature. So uh, in that aspect, that is a political thing, but that's a domestic political thing. But to me, as far as the international community is concerned, they still have a lot of hurdles to uh, to surmount. There is a simple and easy path for Saudi Arabia to be accepted by the powerful and influential in almost every government around the world. And it wouldn't require them to spend billions of dollars on sports. End human rights violations. Stop the torture. Halt the executions. Sporting bodies and professional athletes can still take the money, and they can tell their fans where the money comes from. And with a collector voice, 
they can tell the Saudi regime that they are wrong. They can be a force for good against injustice and cruelty. Final words to Joey Shea of Human Rights Watch. I do think that it's possible for the Saudi government to change. Abuses under Mohammed bin Salman have deepened both quantitatively and qualitatively. Saudi Arabia has changed enormously over the past six, seven years. And I think that he has been able to get away with this increase of repression through this strategy. Um, but he's not immune from uh, changing his behavior. Um, and I think that one of the most powerful ways to make the Saudi government change their behavior is through sporting and large-scale events that people are interested in. This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodrich. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region.